0: If you have your Bibles, let's open up to the book of Acts, chapter 2, and we're going to continue where we've been the past several weeks. I, I think the Lord has, um, as I was sort of navigating through Acts and sort of walking through 1 and 2, and I think in the Lord's sovereignty, to bring us to this place today where we get back to what I believe are just really simplistic messages of what the church is supposed to be doing, and uh, sort of a reminder. And so, what we're going to do today is sort of have a—I just would call it a spiritual checkup uh, in the life of the church. Acts two is informative in that way, and I want to read for us uh, the entirety of the of the scripture this morning. And uh, I'm not singing to you, I promise. It's something else. But uh, beginning in verse 42, follow along with me as the text says this, and it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believe were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we pray that you would speak to us as your church. Lord, we ask that you would change us. Let us look more like your son, Jesus. We plead with you to be in this room, be amongst your people, and change us, God. For we ask these things in Christ's name amen it's a hard weekend to be back like in many ways i have i feel like i've been in the bullpen and been sitting on the sidelines just ready to get back to be in this room to be with you but it's a hard week to come back because of all the things that we're watching transpire in our city and throughout the culture And I by no means have any of this entirely figured out. It's a complex issue. There are nuances. There are are shades in the midst of this on multiple sides. It is extremely complicated. But what I believe today, more so than anything, even as the culture has changed, I think one of the things that we need to be reminded of as a church is that God's mission and His purpose for the church has not changed. The church has survived pandemics, it has survived racial wars, it has survived strife, it has survived persecution, and all through the midst of of the 2,000 years of plus history, the church's mission has remained the same. The church's mission today is the same today as it was two weeks ago. The way we articulate that mission around here is just simply to see people far from God come to know Christ that's our goal that's our aim we speak to address those things socially as we can and to be able to address those from a biblical perspective and what I want to do this morning is I want to show you what's formative for the church early on because these principles are the exact same thing that Travis Avenue needs to be doing over the next 20 to 30 years these things have not changed In fact, what I believe has happened in the text is that God is sort of bringing before us these these signs and these markers that we need to measure ourselves by and to make sure that we are following in the testimony and in the footsteps of those who have gone before us. That the goal is not to be new and, and hyper relevant. It's not to, to change, but rather it is to adopt principles that God has given and to walk with those. And so, what I want you to first begin to see as sort of a checkup or, or, a, or a sign is just simply this posture of biblical faithfulness that existed within the early church. Biblical faithfulness. Notice with me in the text in verse 42, he says this They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. They devoted themselves. Some translations will will render this. They, They continually devoted themselves, regularly forming the habit of going to the instruction and the command of the scripture. And so what was true for the early church then is still true for the church today. That we are to be a people that is pursuing a posture of biblical faithfulness amongst the world because they're watching. And what we've seen in the book of Acts recently is that the people of God, when they walk closely with God, full of the Spirit, what happens is <coughs> the world begins to look in and they see God's people acting in these strange ways they, because faithfulness to Scripture is extremely foreign. It was foreign then and it's foreign now. And our most persuasive form of evangelism is, yes, we need to have conversations with people that are far from God, but I would argue that one of our most palatable forms of evangelism today is just being a people that walks distinctly from the world and is not living in the world, consumed with the world's ways, but rather our posture is one of being faithful to what the Bible is teaching and instructing its people to be. And so he says these people, they they devoted themselves. We we saw that the Spirit of God comes amongst them amongst Pentecost. And Peter preaches this overly simplistic sermon. And we left off last week where it said 3,000 people were saved. And here's what Peter did. He preached in a forum with no air conditioning. He preached in a forum with no red carpet or pews and and no new subwoofers and and multimedia screens and and LED bar lights. He he didn't preach with any of that stuff. He just preached in the power of the Holy Spirit and people started responding like, what is this guy talking about? It was so abnormal to to what he was doing. Now listen, I'm not condemning any of this stuff. I'm for one thankful for, for screens and words on the screen. I'm thankful for air conditioning, especially in this Texas heat, right? Like it's okay, but those things were not the main thing and it says that 3,000 people were added to the church that day. 3,000 responded to his message and his invitation and so what do they do in response to that? Well, they, they didn't develop necessarily a strategy or a blueprint they they didn't necessarily write a book they just simply said this we're just going to be a people that just commits ourselves to this we're going to continually devote ourselves to the apostles teachings we're going to pursue this now here's the thing that i want you to see out of this and here's the point of application in this that if you are walking in the fullness of the spirit you're going to be drawn to the scriptures If you're not walking in the fullness of the Spirit, you're not going to be drawn to the Scriptures. As God's Spirit changes you, it will increase a desire within your heart and your life to know Him more through this. And so when we're full of the Spirit, we begin to walk in a posture where we're committing ourselves to the things that this book is saying because this is what brings life and this is what brings everlasting change. But the second point of application is this, is that healthy churches consume a healthy diet of sound doctrine. Listen to me. You cannot be considered a healthy church if you are not regularly eating from this book. You're not practicing the posture of obedience and faithfulness to Scripture if we are ignoring this. And so what did the early church do? They, they simply didn't run away from the hard things. They simply said, no, we want to know and study and learn, and we want to examine ourselves and examine the Scriptures so that we can know God better. Healthy churches consume this regular diet of sound and, and good doctrine. Can somebody please say amen in this room right now? Listen to me very carefully. I'm going to talk to you like I talk to my children just for a moment. We have been out of church for 13 weeks. Do you understand me? 13 weeks we've been gone. And if we can't come in here after 13 weeks and be a little bit excited, listen, I told you I was sick and tired of looking at Matthew Barry, right? He doesn't talk to me when I'm preaching. He just stands there or he fidgets with the camera or he adjusts the focus. I'm over that, okay? I've told Matthew, we're we're going Facebook public. I'm breaking up with you, okay? It's official. You're done. Why? Because preaching is a community event. It's something that's that's dialogical in that sense. And so listen, the more you say amen and talk, the the louder I might get or the more engaging I get. If I see you fall asleep, it's probably going to put me to sleep in the pulpit. So you are responsible, okay? Okay. Now, I know we're in this formal room, all right, and it's, it's awe-inspiring. But listen, you guys, we got to loosen up a little bit because right now, I'm going to tell you this. The traditional service, the traditional service, the traditional service is louder than you. They communicate louder than you do. Listen, they even move around more, believe it or not, in worship than many of you do, okay? We have got to stop being fuddy-duddies, okay? That's a Greek word, go look it up, okay? It's also in the Hebrew, you can go find it later, do a word search. 13 weeks, okay? I need y'all to talk, to, I need to know you're still alive behind those masks for a second, okay? You can pull it down, say something to me, all right? You understand? You understand? All right, here we go. Back on. Biblical faithfulness. They were pursuing that. Paul says it elsewhere in Colossians. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and as you admonish each other with all wisdom. Let the word of God dwell in you. Let it be rich and let you teach it. And then he goes on he says this. We see this vital sign of of, of being authentic with the Bible, but now we see this transition to fellowship. Notice what he says, they devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And so this Greek word, some of you are familiar with this because you're in a Sunday school class called the Koinonia Sunday school class. And so for those of you that are in that class, you already know this, but fellowship is the word Koinonia and it just simply means commonness. Having a common sense, a, a shared purpose, a, a shared value system—it means that when we have koinonia fellowship, we share our possessions and our things, but we also share our experiences together. And so, here's that, how that affects church life: is that if you're really a koinonia and you're pursuing biblical fellowship, then the posture cannot be regularly, "Hey, good to see you here on Sunday." See you next week. Amen. Talk to you next week. Please say it louder for the people in the back. Amen. I'm so thankful for our TCU students. It's this common sense of purpose and, and value. And so God's people are meant to walk with each other regularly through hard and difficult things. It's not meant to say, hey, see you Sunday, see you next week in seven days. No conversations, no text, no fun. That's not what God intends for his people. There are seasons in life where, yes, that is difficult, and that's a par par for the course, but that is not regularly what God wants us to experience. And so what we say around here, it's a little bit different. We would just simply say authentic fellowship has been summarized with the statement that you've heard me use, circles more than what? Come on, for the people in the back, circles more than? Circles more than rows. We love that you come to the service. We love that you come and and hear the preaching of the word and engage uh, in the music and and let your heart be be stirred by those things. But the best way for you to know people and to be known is for you to be in a circle. And and those of us that have have been in circles over these past 13 weeks, you've experienced the value of being able to connect because you've been stripped of, of everything else. And that circle has become far more meaningful for you during this time. Some of our classes, the testimony of some of these circles is that they're talking and sharing more about their personal life than they've ever done before. There's community being established at deeper levels, all because there's a willingness to engage in the circle. That's what we do, and, and that's one of our values. This is what fellowship means. He also says that they committed to breaking the bread, and, and just by an aside, I'm not here to argue the Lord's Supper and what it's supposed to look like and all that, but I believe he's referring to the Lord's Supper, and I believe that the, the practice of the New Testament church was they would eat a meal and then take the Lord's Supper, and that was pretty much the common practice throughout the church. We're going to eat, and then we're going we're gonna to take the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to remember the, the broken body and the shed blood. And eventually we're going to get to a place where we recognize that the gospel leads us to a place of celebration. But I have been absolutely just, just chalked this up. Appalled may not be the right word, but there are just some guys that need to go to seminary again and study, to, that, that, that do the Lord's Supper with birthday cake and Coca-Cola, and it's a party. That is not the intention of the Lord's Supper. Eventually the gospel leads us to a place of celebration. But what about all that stuff prior to that where he's like examine yourself see it, what sin exists within you remember the broken body remember the shed blood and then eventually we get to the place where there's no more sorrows and tears and that we can celebrate but the gist of the Lord's supper and communion it's examination It's recognizing, hey, listen, where where am I off? What does God need to change? And so this is what they committed themselves to, the breaking of that bread and prayer. They preached to the ear about Jesus, but the table preached to the eye about Christ. It's why we need the Lord's Supper regularly. But we also recognize that in this time, we're providentially, in a way, kept from doing it. And we're going to do it again, but we want to make sure that however we decide to do that, that it, it keeps people safe and, and, and we don't begin to spread things unknowingly or, or unwittingly. And so we just wait with, with patience and, and we look forward with expectancy. But there's also the third vital sign that exists there is just vibrant worship. Notice in verse 43 where he says this. He says, Awe came upon every soul. Awe. In the Greek, it's the word phobos, and uh, it's where we get the word phobia, where we get the word fear. And in this context, what he's doing is he is recognizing that when the people of God came together and they began to see the supernatural acts of God and and the tornado-like wind that comes down at Pentecost and preachers, uh, Peter is just spitting hellfire and brimstone and people are getting saved. There's this awesome awareness that they are before a holy and righteous God, and it's sort of in a way, it's awe-inspiring, but it sort of freaks them out a little bit too. And they're like, something supernatural is going on here. They are connected to to the divine presence, being in God's presence as his word unfolds before his people and as God reveals himself. And it says in verse 46 that day by day, they were attending the temple, breaking the bread in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So a couple things about this. One of the things that I'm hearing from, from younger folks, often, more often than not, is sort of this move away from larger assemblies in the church. And I've heard this statement over and over and over again for the past 13 to 14 weeks, the biblical church is the church in the home. Like this is what church is meant to be like. Let me just gently, lovingly just say to you that it doesn't mean that you can't have home in a church, but what we have here in Acts 2 in this verse in verse 46 is you see the people of God biblically and rightly gathering together in a large assembly. In this moment, it would have been the synagogue where they gathered together. They didn't have Travis that existed, but it was a large group. How many people got saved at the end of Peter's sermon? 3,000. So my rebuttal to that is oftentimes, yeah, we're not biblical until this room is full of 3,000 people. We want to be a New Testament church. Let's be literal about it. The idea that we can push away, we, listen, we need each other. I need to look around and see gray-haired people and, and younger people. I need to see the 20-year-olds the and the 18-year-olds and the, and, and the youth, but I also need to see the 60- and the 70-year-olds and the 30- and the 40-year-olds. We need each other. And in this moment, they're gathered together. They're, they're gathering in the temple. They're doing the things that God has told them to do. But notice what he says. They go home, and then what do they do? They break bread. They get back in their circle. They're grateful that you're in the pew but where are we going from the pew and how are we moving people down to where there's deeper levels of intimacy and and we become more authentic and real with our struggles and we come alongside one another. They broke the bread, they received the food and then notice it says they were glad and they had generous hearts. So they were rejoicing in all of this but I want you to notice the word generous that exists there. So there's a guy named A.T. Robertson He's one of the most famous Greek New Testament grammarians that you've probably never heard of, but in, in Southern Baptist circles, respectively, and in most other circles, he's one of the, one of the smartest Um, most conservative, um, one of the best scholars that have ever been produced out of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he has written some books on uh, on, on just word pictures in the New Testament and wrestled with this. And Robertson says this about this word generous. He said that, that in this case, it's got this word picture that their hearts were free, get this, from rocks. Their hearts were free from rocks amongst each other. So what does that mean? What does that word picture have to do? Well, the idea is this. The glad and generous Christian has no stones of selfishness in their heart. They are seeking to remove all of the selfish stones that exist within them that get in the way of the gospel in obedience to Jesus. They were glad and they were generous. And we see that they were giving away things and selling things. And, and this wasn't, by the way, uh, government compulsion to get rid of things. That's not what was happening here, this was voluntary. Spirit led benevolence towards one another that was prompted by the Spirit of God as a result of the Spirit of God. I sat and listened in a New Testament theology class years ago. A man who who seemed to argue that what the text was arguing here in Acts 2 was some form of, of subtle communism and Marxism. That if we're going to be obedient, that this is where the scripture tends to argue government compulsion of taking what you have and giving it to someone else. This is voluntary. Led by the Spirit, maybe in that sense involuntary, but it's not compelled by a government official. And so they showed this generosity, but I want you to also notice this vital sign number four, this outward focus. Notice in verse 47, he says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so here's what that means. A healthy church that lives out verse 47 is going to have a burden for other people. What's our mission? Our mission is to see people far from Christ come to know God. Those that are far, we want a holy burden towards those who have yet to receive and respond to the testimony of Jesus has been revealed by his word. And The church has an opportunity like never before to bear witness in a culture that is crying out for someone to save them. As I said in the beginning, this is extremely interesting, it's an extremely difficult, it's an unbelievable challenging time to be alive. I watch the, the death, I've seen lots of deaths on social media over the past two or three weeks. In some ways you watch it and you go, is this real, like, is this really happening? And we become immune to it because we see it so much. And I've seen Christians fall on one side or the other, they, they become dismissive of our black brothers and sisters in Christ, of, of their grievances. And one response to them is that you need to not be the victim and you need to just step up and overcome. And and there may be some truth to that. On the other side, you've got some that are taking police officers, all police officers, and sort of lumping them in a category that they're they're all oppressors. And personally, I don't don't find myself... um, I find myself in this position where... I want what God wants and, and God's justice. And so I find myself in this place as a pastor, I, I just find myself in this position where I, I need to just be quiet and listen for a while. Not be pressured to speak in haste. Tuesday was, um, it was Blackout Tuesday on social media. And, and many, uh, many of my friends, colleagues, um, pastor friends participated in that. Although I think, it, the, the point of that Tuesday sort of blew past a lot of people where we went to make a statement about, yes, we support black lives, which we should, but the whole point of, of Blackout Tuesday was to promote other black voices that are speaking to some of these issues. It wasn't to make a statement for you on social media. It was rather to elevate other voices within your circle that, that maybe don't know or understand or identify, and that was the point. We, we kind of, we missed it, I think, as a, as a culture. And so Haley and I, we wrestled with this for the past two weeks. And so I, I called my, my friend, who was my chairman of my deacons at my previous church for over four years, a guy by the name of Leroy McClure, African-American, uh, had a son that played uh, four years uh, basketball at, at Baylor. And Leroy is one of the godliest guys that I know. He, he has been a dear friend to me for almost eight years now. And I've known him for a long time. He watches these sermons. I get feedback from him. Hey, great message, pastor. Love it. And he's probably, he'll watch this. And I called him up and said, hey, can we meet? I just, I want to hear you and just I want to know how you're processing all this stuff. He said, sure. So we met up on Tuesday. We met at DFW National Cemetery uh, right next to DBU. And we sat on a park bench in 90-degree weather for two hours. And I just let him talk, let him talk, let him talk. And I've known Leroy long enough to know some of the same things he said over and over again. And here's here's what I've come to understand with Leroy and my other African-American friends that I have. For many of them, first of all, their experience is not all homogenized. It's not all been the same. However, the vast majority of them have experienced some similar things. And I walked away from my meeting with Leroy and I said, you know, Leroy grew up in, in the in the rural parts of, of northwestern Arkansas. He understands what it's like to get pulled over and, and to to want, he he's been discriminated against. He can, he can illustrate. He, he knows what that's like. I don't know what that's like. And I just said, I just need to listen. And here's what Leroy told me. He said, Pastor, he said, um, reconciliation is impossible without the gospel. He said, we can't reconcile without Jesus and without the hope of the gospel. He said, but maybe the best thing that you can do to tell your people is that before we, we make judgment or before we criticize to just sit and listen and, and ask God, like, hey, would you gently, like, or, or maybe abruptly, would you show me, like, where I might have some prejudices in my own heart, or I may, I may discriminate, or I may, you know, think in a negative way towards someone or, or a group of people, like, just just show me and then heal me and then, and then let me walk in righteousness. Because I know this, and, and I think we would agree with this here, but I don't want to assume, listen to me, racism, it's a sin. Like, I, it's wrong. There's no case for it biblically. Like, it's, it's not a false concept. That like, exists. Like, racism is, is wrong and it's a sin and we should unequivocally condemn it. And as one of your elders, we will, we will be ferocious and aggressive in confronting that if seen or experienced here in this church. We want nothing to do with it. At the same time, every police officer that I have talked to that watched the things on the video in Minneapolis, I've not found one, and I'm friends with quite a few, that has said that police officer was right. Like, that was wrong. It was at some point it, once he was detained. Everyone said the training should have kicked in. He should have been moved. It was a horrific way to die. But the, the thing is, is though now what we're seeing is like yes, there's this cry for justice, but then at the same time we're 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 condemning large groups of, of police officers. Is that they're all bad at? Listen, there are some bad apples that that need to be out. But not all police officers, or many of them become police officers because they're empathetic and they're merciful and they want to serve and protect in the noblest of ways. They, they make mistakes. And listen, when they make mistakes, we should condemn it. They should be punished. They're not immune from those things, especially when we see that, that it may be so flagrant. I mean, we, we ought to go, yeah, let's address these things. But at the same time, let's not throw, defund all of them and have no police. That's, that is insanity without laws. And, and, and where does justice then go? Who decides when, when those things happen? But things are broken. And I think it's okay for us to go, we acknowledge it's, it's broken, and we acknowledge that justice is slow, and we acknowledge that, that not all cops are, are evil people, but we also at the same time understand that our African-American brothers and sisters and other minorities have had some, some different experiences with police than we have. Not all the time, not all the way across the board, but it's different. And so our posture is, hey, listen, let's, maybe before we throw a social media post up, like maybe, maybe we need to sort of expand our circle a little bit and get to know some of our, our brothers and sisters that, by the way, are, are just as much in the image of God as you and me, just as much. I'm no better than them because of, of I'm, I'm short, have a big head in Irish than, than they are because they're from wherever. And, and vice versa. And so when we go to fight for, for against injustices, we do it with, with the gospel propelling us and, and watching it, but, but we have to be mindful and we have to guard. It. We need to say things and, and speak up. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just to go listen to somebody. And, and, and just good pastoral ministry and wisdom, I, I had to learn this uh, in, in counseling, is that you, you need to be able to empathize with people. And you've got to learn it. If you score low on an empathy test, you can learn empathy. You can develop empathy over time. It's not an excuse for, for doing whatever you want. And, and so I want to I conclude with this. When we talk about loving our neighbors, what, what we mean by that specifically is love for neighbors means caring for the things that do not touch or affect us in any way. But when I love them, I learn to care about the things that they care about. Whether it's the Hispanic community or the Korean community or the African American community, just me loving them means that I'm going to learn to, to, to understand and to know and to pursue and to empathize with things that I maybe don't have an experience with. And getting to know and to understand. Empathy means that when others hurt, I hurt, and, I, and it moves me to a place of action on their behalf. Like I become their advocate. I want to conclude with this statement this morning because I realize how, how touchy this is perhaps to some of you and, and it's, it's uncomfortable to, to talk about. This is not the, the first time back after 13 weeks, like I wish I could talk about other things, but like we're, we're overwhelmed with it. We see it, it's here, it's in our city. Haley and I saw it on Friday night. We went out to, to get something to eat, to go, and we just, we were able to, we saw and watched the, the protests start in the, in the Target parking lot, and they moved around, and so we kind of observed from a distance, and, and listen, we're also for peaceful protests, like 100%. They're not wrong in doing that. What we are against is destruction of, of property and, and, and destroying things to, to make a point, point. and I think it's okay to speak up about that stuff. But reconciliation does not happen apart from the gospel. And we are motivated and compelled by love and, and mercy and compassion. God tells us in Micah 6, 8 to, to do justice, to pursue these things. So, so we long to see justice done. And so here's our posture as a church. God, in whatever the circumstance, in whatever the way, let your justice be done on this earth. Let your justice be done and that should be our prayer i want to end this time in a time of prayer our um, i wasn't alive during the jim crow era and in segregation i've seen it i've read about it some of you were you saw it and and those of you that lived through it i've heard from several of you that like you You've never seen multiple cities at the same time consecutively for over a period of two or three weeks, like burning. Like this, is, this really is, I hate to use the word unprecedented because we've used that word over and over and over again, but like this is one more thing. And we need to pray for our city leaders. We need to pray for our police officers that they would do justice and, and do right. We need to empathize with our African-American brothers and sisters that have had a different experience than us. If we're put off by that statement, listen, you need to go talk to some African-American friends. I'm telling you, if that bothers you and you're squirming in your seat or not looking at me in the eye right now, like I, you need to go talk. Because I'm telling you, the vast majority of them, not all of them, but many of them, have had experiences like that. I had an experience like that in my previous church. I was set to call a minister of music to my church. He was a buddy of mine from from DBU, His, his name was Quincy. Quincy was African-American. He had two beautiful kids, gorgeous wife, successful. Wife was a a doctor in education, uh, brilliant guy, brilliant musician. And he had been coming, and I thought, we're going to hire Quincy, and he's going to come to our church. We were talking. We were in the salary negotiation stage. And he said, I really feel like God's calling me to be here. he, He led in service. He sat down, and I watched him sweat through an entire sermon. And I thought I would just put him on the hot seat, making him uncomfortable, right? He was, he was squirming, moving his head, wouldn't make... I, I see him start sweating. After the service, he's like, man, I just don't feel right. And so he goes down and he calls me on Tuesday. He says, I'm going to go to the hospital. He said, I, I got this fever and I can't shake it. I said, go to the hospital, we're praying for you. Let us know what we can do for you. Three days later, finds out he's got stage four uh, lung cancer. Eat up. He was dead in four months. Two kids and a wife. Why I tell you that story, because... Before we knew Quincy had cancer, I had a gentleman in my church approach me, older guy, and he said, listen, are you thinking about hiring him? And I said, yeah, I'm going to. Like, I'm, I mean, I'm, we're going we're gonna to take Ellis County. Like, we're going to go get him. And he made a statement to me that I'll never forget that it stuck with me. He says, we don't do that kind of stuff here. What kind of stuff are you talking about? I said, we don't, we don't do that here. And I knew what he meant, he knew what I meant, and we had a conversation. And I grew up in East Texas, y'all. I thought the only, only racism that exists is in East Texas, right, East Texas, like we got, we got issues out there, right? Oh, so you mean it's here in, in South Dallas? You mean that it's probably here in Fort Worth? You mean it's in Minneapolis and the, up there in the north? You mean it's in Chicago and, and New York? You mean it's not just a East Texas problem? It, it exists everywhere, where? In our hearts, it's there. We reject that. We push back to those things. So I'm going to ask you, if you can, take a knee to pray. Not to make a point, but to pray. And to ask God to intervene in our city, to protect our, our police, to protect our, our businesses, but but to protect those that, that that have a maybe that in some ways have experienced um, uh, their relationship with the police to be totally different. That have experienced racism. Like, let us be empathetic towards that. Let us hear. Let us seek and cry out for justice. Would you take a knee? Would you would you pray with me? And just ask God right now. Just say, Lord. Would you show me where where I have things in my own heart that I need to deal with? Show me where I may be holding on to some some prejudices. Just say, God, would you reveal that to me right now? Would you speak to me? Would you say, God, would you you heal me of that? Would you help me see every tribe, nation, and tongue as as worthy of, of dignity before you, made in your image? God, help me see that. Lord, help me empathize with people that are hurting right now. They're crying out for justice. Let them be reconciled with you as we pursue justice here on this earth. Let let your justice be known here on this earth. Church, would you pray for our mayor? Would you pray for our police chief? Would you pray that God would give them wisdom and, and, and insight? Would you pray for our police, that they would be able to de-escalate and to serve, but, but be able to respond when, when they need to and when necessary, that God would protect them as, as civil servants, that they would do right in your eyes? Would you pray for our president? Would you pray for the federal government to to find a way to deescalate and to bring peace? But would you claim to God and just say, God, I know that, that true peace does not come apart from your son. Let us be reconciled to your son, Jesus. Church, would you cry out and say, Lord, let justice be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, help us, for you are the only one that can. Let us keep the gospel the center of all that we do, but let us speak boldly and confidently. Let us empathize. Let us stand beside. Let us rejoice that those who rejoice, let us weep with those that weep. God, would you change us? Make us into who you want us to be. good, God. Let us commit ourselves to your word. Let us commit ourselves to one another, to prayer. Let us be a house and a home of prayer. For we pray these things in Christ's name.